1: Hello there, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm Jason Koh, and my guest today is Chris Patterson, your usual host, who is an assistant professor at Hong Kong Baptist University in the Department of Humanities and Creative Writing. Chris also writes fiction under his alter ego, Kavika Guillermo. Today, we'll discuss his academic book, Transitive Cultures, Anglophone Literature of the Trans-Pacific, which was published by Rutgers University Press. Chris Patterson's book, Transitive Cultures, compares English language literary production from Southeast Asia and its diasporas in North America in order to elucidate and critique discourses of pluralist governance. Building upon established arguments that state-sponsored multiculturalism at home justifies imperialism abroad and that state-assigned ethnic and national identities in Southeast Asia are vestiges of colonialism, Patterson studies minor literatures of the Trans-Pacific as a mode of response to pluralist governmentality. In examining these cultural communities, he finds an, quote, alternative politics of identity in their literature that express a motif of transition. Engaging in these ceaseless pr- processes of transition which Patterson dubs transitive cultures, enables individuals to maintain mobility in hyper-controlled spaces. Instead of using a national paradigm such as Asian American literature, Patterson uses the term Trans-Pacific Anglophone literature to describe English language texts from Malaysia, Singapore, and the Philippines, as well as those written by Southeast Asian migrants to Hawaii, Canada, and the mainland United States. He uses this label to emphasize the encounter and exchange that typifies transitive culture, and to stress the ideology of linguistic identities. This genealogy of an underappreciated literary tradition explores transitive cultures in metahistorical novels, travel narratives, and in non-realist genres, and offers a border-crossing method for conceptualizing and reading literature that purposefully elides multicultural categorizations. Hi, Christopher. Hi. Or... <laughs> well, let's get into it. Um, how did you start down this research path?
0: Yeah, well, thank you for, for having me on for agreeing to do, to host this. Uh, so what started me down the path was I, you know, my upbringing as uh, in, I was up, I was born in Portland, Oregon, and uh, my family was, was, my mother was from Hawaii and, and my sister was also uh, born in Hawaii. Uh, and so they were also quite mixed and my family in general is very mixed. Um, in the sense that, you know, there's uh, blackness in my family, there's white people, there's um, Japanese, my auntie is Japanese, there's a lot of Filipinos, there's uh, my Chinese uh, little cousins, I have a Korean sister-in-law. Uh, and so there's, there's this kind of this playful attitude towards intimacy, um, crossover and identity that um, I felt like was always kind of ingrained in just the way I was brought up. Um, but the thing is, though, all those identities, at least from the whole in Hawaii, all kind of cohere um, under this kind of local identity, right? And then the, the the Hawaiian sun turns every skin brown in a sense, <laughs> the same kind of color brown. And so when we moved to Portland, it was it was it was different. Like when I was born, um, there, we couldn't just say we were locals anymore, right. you know. Uh, and so we kind of gone through this strange process of, of mixture, um, and then suddenly everyone else had kind of a more to say about who we were than we did right um yeah and so it was kind of that experience of growing up that way of being in a very kind of working class communities and then uh, when my mother divorced um my father she still had three kids you know to take care of and so kind of just seeing her and and my older sister and the way that they dealt with with race and um with the way people saw them gender and sexuality um was always you know it always felt like they Uh, were experts on themselves, Mm. right? But everyone who talked to them felt like they were experts on them. And so there was kind of a strange game always being played and they were, and I could observe how, how well they, they played it, you know? Um, And so my mother's kind of like an expert at, at her own living in her own body and performing herself. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of inspired a lot of the book, like um, being able to see that uh, the way my family adjusts to that, the way that they move from one space to another, um, and so, that's where a lot of the ideas from the book started to come from. That's where I first started to question, and so, yeah, and how does that then work in a larger context? Why does that seem to be similar in the way it works, whether I'm in Hawaii or living in China or living in uh, in America, right. right? Why do we still have to bump up with those same boxes or boxes but differently named boxes? Right. Yeah. Thing. How did you? What type of tactics
1: did you fe- see your you know your family elders partaking in?
0: Um, I mean, it was it was really difficult to understand at the time, and I think reading a lot of literature helped um, articulate or at least uh, uh, help me characterize what I was seeing a bit more. And you know, like the book doesn't talk about my family at all because I feel like that at least other people can kind of see the literature and, and understand it. Um, and so. Yeah, I, I didn't even quite understood what I was seeing. Understand right. what I was seeing, right? Because um, to me, it was like, um, oh, you know, my sister is sometimes black, sometimes she's Latino, sometimes she's this, you know. And I right. thought about those in, a, in kind of a, I wouldn't say naive, but <laughs> not very, dev- you know, uh, not very academic way or not very articulated way. Um, but then the more literature I read, the more like Asian American literature, mm. uh, uh, in- literature in English from Southeast Asia. Mm. Uh, literature from Hawaii, mm. uh, I started to realize this is not, you know, um, people have a hard time recognizing this, but there's a lot of books about it, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and a lot of times these books are not the kind of typical, uh, canonical books that you would imagine is like, you know, in an American literature class or mm. even an ethnic literature class. Mm. Um, and so I became very interested in trying to answer that those questions via literary texts, mm. uh, and especially the ones that are kind of on the margins, right? The ones that are um, deemed inauthentic, right? Right, or or too kind of trickstery, or um, or, or not about an authentic ethnic subjectivity, mm. right? So those texts really started to um, attract me, right. seduce me much more mm. than um, the ones that we were kind of more plainly given and said, you know, this right. is this is a book that's about you and your identity. So uh, how did yeah. you go about finding these texts? Um, I, I would credit <laughs> the great process of graduate school <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had like over 200 books on my exams list when I was doing my exams. Wow. And so, you know, that makes you read the, the marginal books, right. you know, if there's anything to be said about that, you can at least <laughs> say <laughs> I've read more than the canon. I've actually read all around the canon of, right. of, um, uh, I think my exam list was like migrant diasporic literature or something like that. And those are the only terms that we had. To name them. And so, um, yeah, I ended up reading a lot um, just based on, on those exams lists and then realizing uh, similarities that I couldn't see before and that I hadn't learned about in any class thus far. Well,
1: that is an interesting point and part of the critical inter- intervention of your book. You know, how, how do people find these texts if they don't necessarily fit into that category, especially if these books are about? escaping or, you know, Mm -hmm. or using categories. So maybe you could tell us more about this title, uh, Mm -hmm. this idea of transitive culture and, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what does that mean? And the specific idea of trans-specific Anglophone literature.
0: Yeah. Um, for transitive culture first, um, and I get, I, I get this idea from a lot of these, these, these texts. So it's really hard to explain it without conjuring them. Right. Um, I mean, the kind of one word or one sentence definition I give is that they're transitive cultures uh, or cultural practices of managing, reinterpreting, and transitioning among cultural identities
1: Mm.
0: and focusing on contexts where identities are seen as authentic. And so that's the kind of one sentence version. But when I think about it and I try to explain it, usually I have to. um, It it takes these particular texts because they're so unique (laughs) and the context that they're dealing with. uh, are also so unique, and so, uh, like in the book, I talk about K. S. Mannium's um, "In a Far Country," where he talks about uh, the tiger as a metaphor, and the tiger is kind of symbolizes, I, I guess, in an American context, it would symbolize like ethnic nationalism. Right. Um, and so the tiger is, you know, the strong, um, empowered being who protects its young. Right. Um, so it's about preservation and it's about kind of entrenchment, right? In the right. you know, tiger staying in the tree or in the. Um, in the cave or something, <laughs> and then uh, Mannion basically contrasts that uh, in a later essay with uh, the figure of the chameleon. Um, and so the chameleon is is kind of the uh, you know opposite in some ways to the tiger, um, still kind of an ethnic migrant subject, but one who's a, who adapts right. um, to whatever environment's put in. But and can often be read um, in different ways, uh, simultane- all at the same time. Right. right. So it's not just switching from one thing to another. It's simultaneously many things. Um, and so Maniam then talks about how the chameleon is actually more upsetting for him to um, bec- the optics of racialism mm. um, in Malaysia at the time. And so in the, in the uh, early nineties, uh, whereas, you know, we're, and I think, think from the U S point of view, we'd kind of immediately assume it's the tiger is the most resistant, the most upsetting figure. Um, but in, for Maniam, it's in, 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 a context of kind of multiculturalism or multiracialism, the chameleon is actually more upsetting in that sense because they um, he can't be tied down. Right. You know, and that upsets the system, that freaks right. people out. Right. right. And it also rejects this idea that we should be kind of afraid of each other, mm-hmm. um, that we are adversaries from one group to another, that right. we contrast each other. Right. Um, you know, so that, I mean, that's the example I give in my book. And I think that's a good one uh, that I keep going back to it is whenever really we great think example. of it because
1: um, yeah. you can't describe the chameleon what color is a chameleon where it's, it's so easy to, to pick out a tiger
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's it doesn't it's it doesn't give itself to being described on our terms right yeah um. Once we think we know what it is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the other um, big inspiration, I think, for a lot of the book that I don't talk about in the book, mm-hmm. that I guess I could talk about here, um, was Viet Nguyen's first book, Race and Resistance, mm-hmm. which is, I picked up that book when I was um, an undergraduate, uh, and I had very little interest, actually, in Asian American Studies when I picked it up. And then after that book, um, that did a lot for me, partially because I it was the first Asian American Studies or book that I read uh, that I really saw myself in, I suppose. And so the, well, he starts that book talking about two types of authors, similar to mm-hmm. the tiger and the chameleon. Mm-hmm. Um, he's talking about the, the first two kind of big Asian-American, Asian-Canadian authors, the mm-hmm. Eaton the sisters. So the Edith Eaton, <laughs> the the kind of tiger sister. Mm-hmm. And she's the, <laughs> she's the one who, um, I mean, they're both mixed race. They're both uh, Eurasian at the time, but mm-hmm. like half white, half Chinese. Mm-hmm. And so she's the one who becomes very committed to the Chinese Communities, mm. you know, she did a lot of journalism in Chicago and uh, um, Seattle and wrote a lot of short stories about about the Chinese in these places. Um, so, Asian American Studies traditionally has liked that sister more. Oh. And so, the other sister is the chameleonic sister, mm-hmm. uh, Winifred Eaton, mm-hmm. who was also who took on a Japanese pen name oh. uh, as Onoda Watana, uh-huh. which um, means something like to fake a name. Right. right? So she's already very playful in the the way she thinks about it. Right. Um, And then she writes books about Japanese women and like romance novels Mm -hmm. uh, that to our time would feel very Orientalist and Mm -hmm. semi-racist. And I was just reading one um, the other day and I was like, yeah, I still feel that. (laughs) But um, if you read her alongside a lot of the Orientalist writing at the time, Madame Butterfly and those kind of things, you see that she's really reversing a lot of those um, playing yeah playing with it exactly a lot of yeah. tropes um, that she's uh, trying to play around with um, and so and she was way more popular in her own time than her sister right um, and so part of the argument in that book is that you know we've only really been able to see the one sister as mm. some as like Asian American right. politically right we've right. really been unable to kind of deal with this other one right it's a trickstery chameleonic one and so um, that got me thinking from the very beginning. You know, when I was an undergraduate, mm-hmm. uh, how to answer that question. Right. You know, what do we do <laughs> right. with them? And, and because them is like is kind of similar to the way I was brought up. Right. right. So, when we had asked that question, I'm thinking, what do I do about myself in right mm-hmm. that way?
1: Right. And that that seems to be part of the sometimes the resistance to being labeled an ethnic writer. You know, Mm -hmm. that the only way you can really be an authentic ethnic writer is to fit within a certain box or another. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be also kind of part of the political discourse that your uh, book is intervening into, You Mm -hmm. um, you know, like this, even this term Asian American, you know is kind of justified by this idea that you know america or north america is are these kind of multicultural societies could you speak more about you know the way that you're kind of trying to critique what you know many people consider to be a, a good thing
0: yeah um so I, I throughout the book i call this um pluralist governmentality right and so i i name this as a kind of um form of governance that uh i see shared through um, from Southeast, from colonialism in Southeast Asia, right. um, at least British and American colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, and similar to cultural pluralism in the U S which was happening around, um, uh, um, around the same time, but didn't really take over the U S. Um, uh, but it becomes more similar to multiculturalism and then global multiculturalism today. Um, so we would recognize it more as just global multiculturalism, right? In right, the way that racial um, identities are kind of, like you said, they're kind of treated like these boxes that we right. that we check. But so I mean, in a lot of these novels, the the, tri- the acts of transition of uh, taking back identity and trying to reinvent it in a way are in re- direct response to um, forms of multiculturalism or pluralist governmentality, uh, where the state has. Um, the state and then eventually global capital, <laughs> as yeah. we've seen a lot of these narratives. Right. But beginning with the state and the colonial state is very interested in trying to convince people to, that they are part of these groups. Right. Um, partially because they are diasporic and that makes them not belonging quite with the nation as much as others. And then eventually this becomes a more um, full on, I guess, inclusive tactic where everyone's right. included in the nation. Right. And then the state just kind of appears as this neutral umpire right. force. Um, benevolent force, right? And as long as that diversity remains, then the state can kind of get away with a lot, right? Right. So a lot of it, this was uh, became more entrenched during like the Cold War and the scares of communism, right? right? As, right. as a way to respond to you know Marxism and right. communism, people calling for equality, right? And that that this was a kind of equality of a different sort, right? Right. Diversity was a kind of equality um, and a kind of virtue that then could be exported abroad um, from, from when it reached the U S from the U S to other places. Um, So I, I, I try not to be like too cynical about, um, because I've like so many people of color have benefited quite a lot from like multiculturalist institutions, diversity programs, grants, um, and those things would not be there were it not for, um, some of the uh, work that was done, the you know so-called cultural wars of the '80s and things right. like that. Um, but I'm also trying to resurrect the kind of um, de-imperializing, like decolonial politics right. that now we seem to assume leads to multiculturalism. Right. I'm, ar- I'm arguing actually that those politics would kind of see multiculturalism as a governing force. Could you explain that in greater detail? Like oh, with- how
1: how does how does multicultural? Okay, so. Multiculturalism as a governing force, uh, and then also how it's kind of part of, you know, the, the justification of imperialism abroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how is it yeah. that, you know, this kind of American or you know, North American exceptionalism to say that, oh, we are so multicultural. So therefore, we have, you know, a certain sort of exceptional quality about us that leads us to have a civiliz- civilizing mission elsewhere.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of the double play of it, (laughs) I guess, that um, inside the nation, uh, it appears, uh, like I said, to valorize uh, the state or to make it appear neutral um, in a lot of ways. Um, But, I mean, I'm I'm getting a lot of the term from Foucault, right, that Mm -hmm. he talks about disciplinary um, uh, forms of power um, and biopolitical power. And so these identities are are then disciplined into a kind of submission. Right. Um, in this, and I talk about this mostly in in chapter three, but that how these um, identities that are then incorporated and accepted are also split into like the tolerable forms right. and the intolerable forms, right. right? The kinds that are like, that incorporate well and the kinds that don't incorporate well. Right. And usually the ones that don't incorporate well are kind of lost or then they, they're kind of thrown back into the, the darkness of like right. unknown identities. We don't right. know what they are. Right. Let's not deal with them. The others. The others. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and so that there's always this kind of double um sidedness, right, to multiculturalism. And the the text that I look at, I sorry, I didn't really answer your text question either. It's okay. <laughs> um, we have plenty of time. But you know, they get through this They they articulate this very, very well, which is one reason I was attracted to them. Like the just um the first book that I talk about in the book in my book is uh Scorpion Orchid mm-hmm. and just that name. Yeah. Right. Like it's about how like for Fernando Lloyd Fernando who wrote it, um colonial pluralism, uh, the colonial state had this kind of looked like an orchid from afar, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but once you try to pick it or you try to think to get deep into it, there's a, a scorpion down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's using this very, very figurative language to think about the kind of double play right. of, of, um, this kind of, uh, governing force that it actually extends inequalities in a lot of ways. Um, that it, it also creates these like others, right? Intolerable mm-hmm. others. And so that, yeah, that's, so that's the domestic side. And then, the like you said, the m- more imperial international side is that it becomes an exportable good, right. right? And it becomes a kind of civilized, a part of a kind of civilizing mission mm-hmm. that we see very much alive today with yeah. um, countries in the Middle East that we are constantly right. led to believe are very intolerant. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's our best excuse for why uh, they are our enemies and adversaries. Right,
1: right. Right. Um, Can you talk, uh, tell us a bit more about this kind of decision to use this label trans specific Anglophone literature? Mm. And how does that kind of build into the critique that you're, or this critique of multiculturalism that you're making?
0: Yeah. um, I mean, part of it, like I said, when I did my exams in graduate school, it was like 200 books, let's read them all. And they're all, let's, you know... for now, let's just call them migrant and diasporic right, literature. Right. Um, Eternal problem. How yeah, do I label my how do homes? I label it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then, of course, very quickly I realized that diaspora does not really fit right. into um, how to understand these texts. They're not really about the homeland and the host right. country at all. Right. Uh, and that's that's the way I see the kind of paradigm of diaspora. And diaspora deserve to be at home. <laughs> yes, exactly. It yeah. uh, deserves to have a home of some sort, uh, at least. But it's not my home, (laughs) the diasporic home. Uh, And I mean, this is partially, again, from my own upbringing where like, I didn't even know that the majority of my um, family was Filipino until I was like 14 or 15. Wow. But then when I found that out, you know, in a traditional diasporic narrative, that should mean everything to me. Right. You know, it it did mean something, but it didn't mean everything. I mean, you didn't go back to the Philippines and rediscover yourself. (laughs) Not right away. (laughs) Not right away. It took a while. Um you know, it was really cool for me. And I loved learning about the Philippines. Right. I, I, I have been there quite a few times. Um, but uh, I did find that narrative kind of pushed upon me that I'm supposed yeah. to now think of this as my roots space yeah. and everything. Yeah. Um, and it just didn't really make sense to me. And then people would read that as a kind of betrayal, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it was kind of going through that and then seeing, again, how all these other authors felt that way, you know, when I read them and that they understood what this was. And that it wasn't just this kind of um, refusal to go along with a certain politics, right. um, but it was actually very political in itself. Um, and so, diaspora then didn't work, basically. Right. So, I um trans-Pacific studies, trans-Pacific um, modes of, of thinking now have been um, more popularized in, right. through Asian American studies mm-hmm. authors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I'm taking this from, like, Denise Cruz and um, Martin Joe Ponce and others uh, who write books that are, you know, have diaspora throughout, but they also seem to kind of push um, a different kind of angle, like a tra- more transpacific angle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then anglophone, I'm, I'm getting, uh, obviously, from just the word anglophone, mm-hmm. but it's also the most troubling, I think, term of all the terms that I use. Definitely. Uh, it's the one I get asked questions about the most. And, and I really understand why, because um, a lot of people from these areas that I'm talking about, from like Malaysia especially, mm-hmm. do not like the term <laughs> anglophone. Well, why? Could you tell us more? Uh, because they don't want to be seen as just trying to mimic right. um, England, you know, right. uh, and that's the way they see that term uh, and world English is, right, is the preferred way of speaking about it. Um, but then I, I just basically have to convince them I'm not using it that way. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> saying that you're mimicking uh, mm-hmm. these people and, and that, or that these um, books are doing that. Um, and so I'm, I'm very much uh, influenced by Shumisha's use of, of Sinophone mm-hmm. um, where she, Uses that term to kind of talk about non-Han Chinese, both inside and outside of mainland China. Mm -hmm. Um, But part of the purpose of that term isn't just um, to separate those, but to uh, offer a more complex, like heterogeneous form of Chinese ness that then upsets global multiculturalism. And so, part of her target is actually global multiculturalism. We have the same, similar, (laughs) uh, a a similar project there. Um, And so, anglophone, I feel to me does a similar thing of of taking a lot of these kind of like leftovers from different Mm -hmm. canons Mm -hmm. um, and putting them together and, and being able to read them without relying on diaspora as a paradigm, Mm -hmm. um, but trying to read them as the kind of inauthenticity that they express uh, in the same way that I guess Shu does, except I'm trying to do it by bringing Southeast Asia and like the politics of these writers Mm -hmm. to a more American uh, American politics, right? Right, so that, that we can start to see American multiculturalism as a, a form of pluralism, right. uh, pluralist governmentality. And that is part of
1: what trans pacific offers is it, it requires that there a trans pacific comparison be conducted. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how is it that then what happens when you take you know what norm- normatively would be considered Asian American literature and you label it anglophone? What does that do for the sort of cultural
0: politics? Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I that that's always a good question, because uh, I, I don't think they're either or, you know, right. Asian American literature can also be anglophone. Um, it right. doesn't always have to be. Um, and so this is one thing I've had to kind of figure out, uh, as I was writing the book, um, in a very pragmatic form, where, you know, you write your introduction, you know, here goes your methods, here goes your archives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trans-Pacific Anglophone is kind of both method and archive in a way, which kind of that yeah. makes it a bit confusing, I suppose. Um, so it's both the archive that we talked about, but it's mm-hmm. also a, kind of a method, mm-hmm. right? And so um, in my th- third, yeah, my third chapter, I look at two um, Asian-American texts, one of them quite canonical, uh, Peter Bechoza, Cebu. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been read as Asian-American or Asian-Canadian mm-hmm. texts mm-hmm. for so long. Mm-hmm. And so I look at them and I read them as anglophone texts. And basically that means asking, what if we read this as not authentic identities, Right. right. as as if they were not ethnic, uh, or as if they were not intimate subjectivities of right. this type of ethnic personality? Right. Um, what if we read it as if they were like doing something different, as if they right. were like more distanced from these main yeah. characters right. or they were kind of trying to make fun of them a yeah. bit or trying to like put them as figures to critique or to think about
1: not a form of autoethnography.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, So, um, and I also found, you know, I was not the only person who thought these texts were like this, you know, um, even the author, um, like Peter Bitschow himself, Mm. um, in my conversations with him has told me he was, he's always been upset the way this book was received. Mm. And then I showed him my, my work on his book and he just said he really liked it. So I, I assumed I got it more right than other people um, by, by reading it more as a kind of s- like, I wouldn't say cynical, but more um, as as a kind of st- stage play in a sense about the Filipino American rather than being an authentic representation of one.
1: A chameleonic reading.
0: Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> that chameleonic, anglophone. So. Mm.
1: Well, how does this aporia, you know, in, you know, so- Like uh, or this kind of less attention paid to the kind of transnational nature of Asian American studies, how does that relate
0: to multiculturalism? Um, There's a lot of ways to answer that question. And I think that like the sections of the book, I think are kind of devoted to to three different ways. One is through the history, like we talked about. Mm. You can't really get away from the imperial history um, and you can't really get away from how America has relied on um, forms of diversity, multiculturalism, to incorporate people who might otherwise, you know, be uh, factioning in some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you, so that there's a the historical point of view, but there's also the mo- mobile mo- mobility point of view, mm-hmm. um, which is that every time one travels or moves, these identities are kind of exposed, right? You know, um, and this can be advantageous for uh, the kind of inner workings mm-hmm. of, of pluralism in the sense that you know, uh, one can travel to a different country and then come back and only think of themselves as more American, you know, because they had been there and that place is just the opposite. It's intolerant, right? right? It's um, uncivilized or something. And then it kind of reassures us that, you know, we are different. We are the Asian Americans. We're not the Asians, Mm. (laughs) Mm. you know? And so there's this whole, like, we don't want to be confused with them um, that we see in a lot of Asian American literature as well that, that gets expressed in a lot of interesting ways. Um, and so, so there's, there's, this reaches a lot of different um, dynamics. So the third way is, is more in the kind of genre, mm-hmm. like we discussed a little bit before, um, in the sense that we only seem to recognize texts mm-hmm. that are about that identity, right. you know, and that seek to kind of represent it in an authentic way, empower it, right? You know, um, something that's again like very important, especially when you haven't seen those identities of power, you know, in those positions before,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, but also one that doesn't really have an end to it in the sense that uh, there's always going to be people excluded from that. And um, the, the kind of pain that we all go through of not belonging um, is still going to exist, you know, mm. after, even after seeing those images or seeing those representations, you know, for me, what's interesting about those representations of like, you know, someone like Bruce Lee or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, it gave me a lot of <laughs> empowerment and strength when I was growing <laughs> up to finally see some you know, something like that. But what was interesting about that to me was that I, other people that I could talk to shared in those feelings, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it, it also created other types of hierarchies, identities yeah. that then later, you know, as I became like more um more effeminate, I suppose, <laughs> uh suddenly I didn't fit into that and then the pain was there again, you know. Yeah. Um and so there was always kind of this reaction to it by just finding the next identity of being yeah the, the empowerment was just going to yeah. kind of come back. Transitory. You know? Yeah. Okay. So, so far we've focused a lot on, you know, theory, concepts, cultural
1: politics, but I, I I feel like maybe this conversation, we're not really getting to one thing that's really important. I felt in your book is that you're, you're also articulating that these books have great artistic merit. Hmm. I think that that's something that really shines through in your writing is, you know, there's an admiration there for Mm -hmm. these writers and the kind of the ways that they express these ideas, but also the kind of artistry that they bring and also not just how the narratives are about people who subvert identity, but how the books themselves and the ways the texts are written Mm. also kind of play with categorization in order to kind of, you know, bring about something new Mm -hmm. as if there's almost a sort of modernism to it.
0: Yeah. And I I feel like I got lucky in the sense that um, I chose an archive um, because I, I read some books of that archive and I could Mm. just sense that there was a greatness to it, that there was a kind of artistic, um, and a type of artistry to it. Uh, that I couldn't figure out the terms (laughs) (laughs) for. Like I said, I could not canonize them. Um, And, you know, like you take a post-colonial literature class, you're probably not going to read any Filipino uh, literature, Indian Malaysian or Singapore literature. Mm. Or if you take a diaspora class, you know, very similar, or even an Asian American studies class, uh, you're going to be very little of it. And so part of it was kind of this project of – trying to share what I appreciated with other people, you know, right. that this these literatures spoke to me in a very yeah. intimate way yeah. um, and trying to share that and figure out what is this? You know, it's not post-colonial, it's not diasporic, yeah. what is it? Um, and that, you know, then getting repeatedly frustrated at how these were all literatures that were very easily dismissed and ignored, yeah. you know, because of this, because they were yeah. difficult to read, yeah. difficult to um, kind of figure out, you know, where to put them in the academy. Right. Don't fit that
1: um, yeah. easy check mark for box. Exactly.
0: You know, and I, I try not to make this ranty in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I can go on rants f- forever about how people don't read this or it gets ignored, um, especially Filipino literature, which has been around uh, for a long time. And, um, you know, the Philippines is the third largest English speaking country right. in the world. Right. Um, they've been writing <laughs> in English for a very right. long time. Right. Uh, and a lot of the books are, are just are just fantastic, and it's been very difficult to articulate why they're fantastic when you can't put it into postcolonial yeah. or some other recognizable form. And so a lot of the books, like you're saying, is trying to get a kind of canonical form or something right. that allows us to read them and, and understand that these are not this is the project that they're interested in. Yeah, right? it's not the projects that we've been interested in right. so far, but th- it can actually speak more to us than we might think. Right, right. Um, speak more about American Empire. Right. Um, speak more about global multiculturalism today than we might than we might think. Right. Um, yeah. So I, part of the, the project of the book that I'm really happy about um, is to just share those texts right. with the world and, and to be able to kind of name a form or name some themes and tropes right mm-hmm. that that are common in them that allows us to appreciate them and allows us to to figure out what the artists are trying to say. Mm-hmm. What
1: are the any particular themes or tropes that you think stand out, or kind of easy to g- describe in pithy mm-hmm. statements <laughs> made for podcasts?
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. Pithy. Uh, well, first of all, I, I end the book on this, like that. Mm-hmm. That I, I see them as a type as uh, speculative, mm-hmm. um, and then I, I hint at this throughout the book that every text I look at is not quite real, and you know mm-hmm. that it kind of it's messing around with time, uh, magical realism, things like that. Um, and so there's this other register that's not the ethnic auto, autobiography, autoethnography that we were talking right, about. Right. Um, but it's, a, it's it's a type of speculative register, right? You know, and that register means that they're a bit distant right. from from the characters that they're mm-hmm. not exactly trying to inhabit themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, but at the same time, it doesn't make it any less um, intimate. I suppose. Yeah. You know, so like like the word Fernando when he was writing Scorpion Orchid, according to him, stared at himself in the mirror. And would just say, "I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist." Not a racist. <laughs> and, I do that too. Yeah. <laughs> no, we all do that. But uh, but that was because he was writing from different points of view. You know, right. Like, so he was writing a book that, that where there was a South Asian. He was South Asian, so there was a South Asian in the center of that book. But it did use like it broke with different narratives, right? It went through different types of people, mm-hmm. and to do that was pretty radical for his own time, right? right. And to, the fact that that's one of the very first um, Malaya texts mm-hmm. um, to come out of that um, that context, I think, is really interesting and, mm-hmm. and names a lot of what's happening. Mm-hmm. I and mean, you get the same thing with a lot of the, the Filipino literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the diasporical, like Jessica Hagedorn, right, right, um, right. is writing about, from these multiple points of view. Right. You, it's really hard to tie down yeah. a kind of authentic voice. Yeah, um, And so I read them as speculative mm-hmm. as a way to, to show that these are um, – that they're writing from a, a position of in, inauthenticity, mm. basically. That if you, the reader, are coming to this, all you're seeking is a ethnic autobiographic voice, you're, you're going to be very disappointed.
1: You want to <laughs> fill your multicultural checkbox.
0: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. These <laughs> books will not yeah. allow you to do that, exactly. Yes. Yeah, mm. they're going to disrupt that checkbox as, yeah. as much as they can. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so that's exactly part of the value of them, yeah. I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. That they disrupt all those boxes. Yeah,
1: yeah. Now that you've had some time to reflect on this book, and you know it's it's come out, and it you've worked on new things, you, how do you think it sort of uh, speaks to the present moment? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: which present moment is that? <laughs> is yeah, that good question, question. I guess. I yeah. mean, is it the Trump moment? Is it? Yeah. I don't know.
1: Or you know, this kind of era of you know strongmen, like yeah. you know, and it yeah. just seems to that we're living in a sort of blowback moment of anti-globalization or re-entrenchment of nationalism mm-hmm. that even though that seems to be the discourse, you know, like maybe the wool's being pulled over our eyes in a certain sense too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I always try to take the more like Foucauldian um, (laughs) cop-out, just to say, you know, like uh, terrible things have happened in the world because philosophers make predictions. And I'm no philosopher, (laughs) so I'm not even going to go that (laughs) far. But uh, when Trump was elected, we could just start there, I... The first thing that went through my mind, which might be the mind of some readers when they first pick up the book is like, Mm -hmm. oh, he's talking about the Obama era. He's talking about this figure who relied on notions of diversity, who was like everybody's president, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and multiculturalism. And and at the same time, you know, drone bombings just catapulted Mm -hmm. right during Obama's Mm -hmm. tenure. Mm -hmm. And Um, deportations. Deportations, you know, that empire was basically the black eye of of that whole administration in so many ways. Um and yeah like most of the book was written under obama and i thought that too when i first when you know trump was first elected and then um i took some 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 time to think about it and i realized you know there's parts of the book and parts of these theories that are actually more about trump than yeah uh, i would have ever guessed and yeah. i think it goes back to that double sidedness of multiculturalism yeah. you know like with obama you kind of saw the the orchid mm-hmm. side <laughs> you saw mm-hmm. the nice creamy top mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um, i think now we're starting to see Um, and even, you know, with the, like the police shootings and things like that, it was already there, but now we're starting to see much more the kind of, um, terrifying scorpion lane bottom of of multiculturalism. Um, which is that, you know, if once you, if you accept these identities as real and that they're everything, um, you know, how do you know what you are? Like, I know I'm Asian because I'm not white or because Mm -hmm. I'm not black or because I'm not um, Latino. And then those identities are there for you to contrast yourself to them, which means that they are not, they are not part of the us, you know, most, and then they are your contrast, they are your adversaries, they're your enemies, potential enemies. It also kind of,
1: I mean, this is, I'm being speculative here, Yeah. but it seems to kind of raise this discourse too, you know, if multiculturalism is about making sure that every, every box gets ticked in the kind of multicultural identity, then doesn't the kind of Trump resurgence, you know, of white nationalism Mm. also kind of indicate a sort of, we should also have our box checked as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is why Mannium saw um, the chameleon as so important mm. um, because that worldview presumes that these are real. Yeah. <laughs> these identities are like real, real, right? Yeah. They're there, there, you know? Um, and that's the only, way you have to accept that really before you can accept what you just said. Yeah. Right. That now it's our turn. It was yes. their turn. Now it's our yes. turn. It, it's already that kind of, um, you know, oppositional thinking right. that, for Manium at least in, you know, in his time, uh, was reinforced by this, these kind of tiger Right. you know, and that this is why the kind of the fakeness of the, in and the inauthenticity mm-hmm. was such a threat to that mm-hmm. because, um, those were the first ones that kind of had to be dealt with. Right.
1: So how has your, uh, fiction writing been affected or in a sort of reciprocal way affected, mm-hmm. you know, your, your <laughs> academic work, you know? Like you, uh, yeah. you, you are, you know, you could be considered a trans-Pacific Anglophone writer, you know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I talk about my writing career a bit over the, the very early or whatever my writing career has been <laughs> as an artist so far <laughs> publishing um, both obscure and non-obscure mm-hmm. journals. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, I try not to say that I am trans-Pacific Anglophone as, mm-hmm. as a writer because um, it's really hard to think of myself as as an artist, at mm. when I'm in scholarship scholarship mode, mm-hmm. um, but, but
1: maybe that's part of your transitioning.
0: Yeah, and like I well like I, I write under the pen name Kavika Guillermo, like like mm-hmm. you said, and uh, that in itself has been really interesting because my mother told me when I was about the same age, she told me I was Filipino <laughs> somewhere around that same time. Um, well, you know, I have a lot of. Uh, family members in Hawaii and they all have really like what I thought at the time was like really cool names mm. <laughs> you know? like uh, Kanakini, you know, uh, Kamela. And so I was like, these are really cool names. Like mm. I, why didn't I get a name like that? You know? <laughs> and so my mother basically said, oh yeah, I was going to give you a name like that. You were going to be called Kavika. Like that's mm. the name I planned out for you. Mm. Um, and then she's like, okay, you know, but I didn't give it to you. And she didn't really <laughs> explain why. And um, I, I didn't really feel like I, like I had to ask. It was pretty – common sense i think when she told me because we we had moved from hawaii and we're living in the widest big city in america in <laughs> portland oregon right uh and we were like the only my brother and i um and my sister were like the only like brown right. kids like people of color in our neighborhood right. um so yeah name him chris <laughs> like, like don't <laughs> don't give him this like very effeminate you know ethnic name right mm. uh, so i don't i don't blame her at all for doing that um, but ever since she told me that, I like took on that name. And yeah. so even with it, when people call me Chris, I still feel like they're calling me Kavika. And because those mm-hmm. names are kind of similar, it kind of works a bit that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I use that name, you know, anytime I'm not physically talking to somebody. Oh. So like when I'm um, on the internet, mm-hmm. uh, when I'm playing video games, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when I'm traveling, actually, yeah. I would always I would introduce myself as, as Kavi or mm-hmm. Kavika. And so, um, yeah, so I've taken on that name in a lot of different guises and um, it's become a very intimate part of me. Mm. Um, And I started publishing fiction under that name, um, partially because I just thought, you know, the scholarship got my legal name, fiction will get this name, you know, just because I wanted to kind of split Mm. and and make sure it was fair (laughs) to both sides (laughs) of me. Um, And then I started, and then then funny things started to happen. Like, um, I got this email um, about a, a year after... Um, I took on that, that name as a fiction writer, um, uh, from this guy who like wanted to work with me mm-hmm. and he had seen that i had published under a pen name cause I'm very open about it. I don't right. try to like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, and then he, um, sent me an offer that was like, co-write this novel with me. Mm-hmm. And the characters is a, uh, it was an ethnic autobiography mm-hmm. about a Amish woman coming of age, leaving her Amish community and going to New York city. Mm-hmm. So he was like, "You're gonna have to do a lot of research, and we're go- we're we're going to write it together and speak under the same pseudonym, which mm. was uh, like Ava Troyer, something <laughs> like that." And so we were going to both fake <laughs> this. <laughs> he wasn't Amish either, right? right? So we were both going to fake this um, poor Amish girl. Right. And uh, man, that made me so uncomfortable when I got that yeah. email. I was like. You know, I kept asking him questions because, like, I just wanted to more. Know- <laughs> I wanted to know, like, is this something everyone does? Like, is this, like, it have what other ethnic novels have I read that was actually by like two like people pretending? <laughs>
1: it's like talking to a con man, and it's like, yeah, y- you know that this is a con, but you want to hear more. <laughs> want to hear
0: more, <laughs> exactly. Like, can you tell me like how you get up in the morning? <laughs> um, and you know, this is always a conversation in literary, yeah. um, in literature. You know, like how far, especially like white people, can take. Um, using like ethnic characters um, and and pseudonyms and things like that and I realized that by by using this pen name I had been kind of one of them in a way. People thought I was one of them. Um, That's so Interesting. Yeah, and so like I talk about this a bit in the sixth chapter, right. where you know I'm, I'm talking about spe- speculative fiction, mm-hmm. and that this is the way I've, for me that I've overcome right. this kind of um, disconnect, I suppose, right. with the reader to try right. and explain myself a bit better right. is by writing in this like speculative mode. Right. Um, so I don't think I've anything I've written has really been ethnically like authentic ethno, you know, yeah. autoethnography yeah. in any way. Um, and so I, I try to write always in this the same register, the yeah. speculative, even if it's um, about something real or it's in, in yeah. a realist mode, there's always something kind of distancing about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as an artist, I kind of had to to take on that persona a bit more yeah. um, as a way to think through um, my own artistry and how I presented myself. So yeah, I had to kind of come up with these, own, my own strategies, like transitive strategies.
1: Like a double consciousness.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly, transitive consciousness <laughs> in freer's terms.
1: Yeah, yeah, yep.
0: Yeah. Do you want to tell us more
1: about the kind of your current academic trajectory? Because you you're moving into different uh, mm-hmm. different academic fields,
0: or yeah. what what are you working on now academically? <laughs> um, so for my future work, well, right now I'm um, I've been engaged <laughs> with game studies mm. um, quite a lot. As you mentioned, like there are a lot of kind of uh, not so much theorizations, but a lot of playing with ideas of play right. <laughs> throughout the book. Right. I, I see games as kind of, as also functioning um, at within imperial dynamics across the trans Pacific. Yeah. In the sense that for like video games, um, so much of the genre uh, of every game genre comes from Japan mm-hmm. or so influenced by Japan mm. um, that the, what we think of as video games now is just such a trans Pacific right. um, cultural Absolutely. object. Mm. Um, so that's part of what I'm really interested in. I'm, I'm interested in how, and how like, play can also bring out different forms of identity, you know, Mm -hmm. and can kind of uh, reinforce the body, Mm -hmm. you know? So like video games, unlike a lot of like literature and film, Mm. um, I would argue do not really work on identity in the same way, you know, Mm. that like for Stuart Hall, um, films were kind of a perfect way to, um, depict identities or that's, that was one of the main points of films, right. That you mm. communicate with the, the protagonists uh-huh. yeah. in some way that their identity is like, that's yeah. kind of the crux of the film. Yeah. Video games don't really do that. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like you're playing like this, like stereotypical Italian plumber named Mario, <laughs> you know, you, I don't think yeah. any part of you is like, Oh, Italy is empowered, yeah. you know? Um, and so video games are just so much, much more embodied and much more about yeah. um, sensation. And so I think there's, there's something there that's, that's, fascinating yeah and and, you know of course some games work with identity yeah um, but i think those are very cinematic and those are very they're very conscious of what they're doing you know absolutely whereas most the vast vast majority of games um in a sense allow us to think in different terms and so it is part of my kind of search for like alternative ways of um living in our bodies Mm -hmm. and that i think games allow us to do Hmm. that's so interesting
1: well, uh, thank you, Chris, for your time. And thanks for uh, telling us more about your book. And also, you know, your interesting fiction work and your new research. Uh, that was really great. And I look forward to reading more of your future work. So um,
0: thank you. It is totally my yeah. pleasure as has been my pleasure to host this book <laughs> and other episodes. Yeah. So thanks again. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to my
1: interview with Chris Patterson on his book, Transitive Cultures, Anglophone Literatures of the Trans-Pacific. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for books for this podcast, you can message the New Books and Asian American Studies Facebook page. Thanks.